Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. I'm not sure about a lot of that introduction. Uh, <laughs> now, the, the, the part at the end, especially um, of uh, uh, the joy that I have uh, the family, and um, as well as being part of the family of God. I'm glad to be here at CIU, and uh, this, uh, this week is Authority of Scripture Week, and we will have um, several of us faculty speaking today, tomorrow, and then Thursday for our day of prayer. And um, as was mentioned earlier, our theme for this entire year is to declare the Word. And so with our focus this week on the authority of Scripture, we're going to be looking at specifically um, this uh, question of the authority of Christ. And uh, it should come, hopefully, as no surprise um, that the focus in Scripture, and indeed in the Christian faith, is upon Jesus. Well, who is he? Why is he so central to the Christian faith? And many have asked these questions throughout the centuries, um, here through, um, through the centuries, through, since the first century AD. It's unsurprising, I think, when we look at the wider culture, that there is a lot of confusion about Jesus. Um, and uh, that confusion has always been the case. Um, even when we look at some of the uh, um, writings um, here as we track down through church history of those outside of the Christian faith trying to make sense of who this Jesus is, there is an awful lot of confusion. But in a survey conducted by LifeWay Research about two years ago, a surprising lack of clarity um, was seen concerning the identity of Christ even amongst those that would identify themselves as Bible-believing Christians. Um, in the, the survey that was done, there was a very high answer of affirming, yes, I believe the Bible to be true, but then a lot of confusion about who this Jesus is. Was Jesus just a great teacher? Was he the first created being? Is he truly God? Over the next few days, we're going to explore the question of the authority of Christ. In our session today, we're gonna to be looking at the authority of Christ in the birth of the church, and uh, which with the songs that we sang already today, um, and looking at uh, some of these themes, um, I might just be able to just to sit down right now uh, with uh, a thank you worship team for uh, leading us. Um, and as we look at um, these kinds of expressions, why do we say these things about Jesus? Why um, has the church, and why did the early church make so much about Jesus? And my approach today is to look um, here through the lens of a historian, and I guess we'll, we'll hear from Dr. Dunn tomorrow about how well I did in that regard, so uh, see what how the methodology works out that way. But hopefully it should come as no surprise, a little disclaimer here, that I, I'm doing so as one who is personally and deeply committed to Jesus. So hopefully that is, that is clear as we go through. And I'm not going to address all the kinds of questions um, or objections to Jesus or the Christian faith in this talk, nor do I intend to cover all of the evidence in the New Testament. Um, I can talk fast, but not that fast. So um, what I hope to do today in the time that we have is to demonstrate the remarkable nature of what emerges in the early Christian movement in the birth of the church. Well, the significance of Christ is a question, as I've mentioned, that has vexed scholars and historians and lay people uh, here for centuries. And some engaging the question of Jesus have argued that we can know relatively little um, about him or that the enterprise is uh, you know, largely a, um, a futile pursuit of merely finding our own reflection um, here of ourselves in our pursuit of him. And uh, such pessimism, I would note, I'm not going to address all of those kinds of questions, but such pessimism is unnecessary. And I do think that we can trust the writings of the New Testament as a reliable source for both Jesus and the convictions of the early church. But why did the early church make so much about Jesus? 
And it is a question historically that is quite perplexing. I mean, if we really think about who Jesus um, here was, um, we see rather humble beginnings. Uh, given the location of his birth, um, his childhood, his family, his trade, there is little from a human perspective that would suggest the kind of historical influence that Jesus has had. Given the scorn that some from his own hometown expressed, as we look at Mark chapter 6, or even members of his own family, um, it seems that some of his contemporaries have felt the same. The time frame of his public ministry was relatively short. Um, large crowds did gather to hear his teaching and to see miracles performed. But some doubts arise as to the actual commitment of these masses um, to Jesus. Some marvel and desire to make him king by force, as we see in John 6. Others are scandalized by his teaching, and we see again in John chapter 6. Many, including his closest followers, misunderstood the nature of um, his role as Messiah, and one even betrays him to the religious authorities. Another, one of his closest uh, followers to his own shame, denies Jesus, and Jesus is executed as a common criminal with common criminals by means of an excruciating instrument of torture used by the Romans to make an example of those guilty of serious and significant crimes. Not exactly the most impressive resume. But now, as affirmed throughout the New Testament, this is not the end of the story. And I will return to this here in a moment. The earliest proponents of Jesus recognize this as well. And Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians, that the message of a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Well, how then do we come to regard Jesus as so central to the Christian faith? Well, perhaps we can look at some, some points of comparison, um, which uh, I was tempted to make some comparisons with um, foods like pasta and spaghetti. Um, too soon? Too soon? Okay. <laughs> so I was not there last night. I'm just an innocent bystander in that whole, whole discussion. But uh, let, let's look to a different arena then. We'll, we'll stay away from that. So. Um, yeah, as Dan mentioned, uh, we lived in Scotland for three years, and uh, we, there are some commonalities in, in uh, sporting um, events in Scotland versus the U.S. Um, I loved the uh, very easy access to watching, well, as properly called football um, in Scotland, and uh, so I really enjoyed watching English Premier League and Scottish Premier League and um, uh, several of the different European uh, leagues that way. Um, as we were getting to introduce some sports, some sports that were less familiar, some of our friends would note points of comparison, and so perhaps we should find some, some analogies here with this as well. So, for example, rugby was like American football, and I did really enjoy watching that sport. Rugby fan? Excellent. Um, so we got to watch uh, some live competitions in Edinburgh, which was a lot of fun. Um, I had another friend from my church that was trying to get me into cricket. So any cricket fans? No? Okay. Well, um, yeah, he let me a DVD series to watch to kind of get me into the sport, and uh, when I found out how long cricket matches were, my interest in getting into the sport quickly waned. Um, before you Google it, uh, right here during the, during the chapel time, test matches last five, six-hour days. Okay, no thanks, that's right. Um, so, so perhaps we should look at some analogies, though, in the case of Jesus, and some, because of the growth of the early church in the Greco-Roman world, um, suggested let's look at some points of comparison with the Greco-Roman context. And uh, someone suggested that maybe early Christianity was merely an adaptation of a myth of a god masquerading as a human or one of the mystery religions. But what we find in the New Testament just does not fit that mold. Even those in the ancient Greco-Roman world um, struggled to define what the earliest Christian movement was. Um, although the Christian faith was centered as a man, around a man who was healed as a, an anointed one, early Christians did not constitute a kind of political or revolutionary movement. 
In terms of um, Greco-Roman religio, religion, um, practices that way, um, the early Christians didn't fit the mold either. They didn't indeed reject the prevailing practices of worshiping the gods, um, but really as we look at the Christian, Christian faith, apart from perhaps the Lord's Supper and baptism, the Christian faith was not defined by religious rites or rituals or practices or vows. Although Jesus is hailed as a great high priest ministering in the heavenly sanctuary, Jesus left behind no priestly collegium, as was the case with many religions within the ancient world. Um, rather than fitting into religious categories, early Christ followers were despised for not being religious, since they were devoted to Jesus and did not participate in the worship of these traditional gods or of the emperor. All right, well, let's look at another analogy, perhaps a, a philosophical movement. And, and perhaps this would be a closer point of comparison if we're considering philosophical movements to involve not just questions about the conceptions of life and reality, but questions of how we should live. And we do see that kind of pattern in early Christianity, but still, it doesn't quite fit. Um, we, we see this kind of concern uh, for a strong commitment to moral behavior, but the model doesn't explain the role that Jesus has um, here with his followers. And at the end of the day, these um, Greek and Roman models just simply do not explain what emerges in early Christianity. Well, for our time today, in the bulk of our time, I would like to look at a few snapshots of the kind of language that emerges in this early Christian movement, and then draw some conclusions about that language. And hopefully that will be helpful to understand why these early Christians made so much about Jesus. We could easily spend days looking at all the evidence, and uh, I do recognize that this is not a lecture series in one of my classes, so um, anybody want to go to lunch today? Yeah, me too. So we will uh, kind of focus in on a few snapshots here. Um, and uh, I've chosen a few different texts, and uh, one will probably come as no surprise to uh, students in my courses from uh, which book that may be coming from. But um, uh, for those that are interested in exploring this question a little bit further beyond what we're looking at here today, um, I would commend the writings of Larry Hurtado and Richard Balcom in particular, as both of the scholars have been very formative in my own approach. Um, I had the privilege of studying, studying under Larry Hurtado, and you'll see some of the influence, um, and I can definitely recommend you um, some further routes uh, to, to explore on some of these kinds of questions. The first text that we're going to look at today is coming from 1 Corinthians. And uh, this uh, letter here to the Corinthians, um, in this particular section, Paul's addressing some of the concerns that are emerging in the church in light of the larger religious landscape. And I think there's some helpful language for understanding the commitments of Christians as opposed to the wider culture around. And uh, Paul, as he, he writes here, um, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and um, on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, Paul, as he writes this, is very aware of the Greco-Roman religious practices. He grew up in Tarsus. He's traveled um, here extensively by this point through the Mediterranean world, uh, visiting major cities and seeing the various expressions of um, commitment to these gods and lords. But as he notes here, for followers of God, there is one God and one Lord. Now, one who is skeptical may look at this passage and just simply say, well, Paul recognizes the Father as God, and Jesus is simply a Lord or a master. But upon closer investigation, there's actually something more significant that Paul is doing here. We're gonna set the, the text side by side with a very significant text from the book of Deuteronomy. Um, in this statement, we, we read these words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Paul contrasts the many gods and many lords of the world around with the one that these early Christians follow. And we see the description of Jesus as we look here at the bottom of, um, point here? at the bottom, the through whom are all things and through whom we exist um, at the tail end of this confession that Jesus is creator. But even beyond that, if we notice the wording, and I've highlighted here with the italicized, the underline, and the bold, the relationship between this text in Deuteronomy and the text in 1 Corinthians 8. So what Paul does is he defines the unique role of the son with respect to the father, but affirms the essential nature of the one that they are committed to. Rather than identifying Jesus as another God alongside God, Paul utilizes a foundational monotheistic confession we worship one God in order to articulate this confession. In other words, what he expresses is a Christological monotheism. One God, but defined father and son. And uh, we see this affirmed later on in the very same letter as a foundational commitment for the body of Christ. So we see in, in chapter 12, as Paul begins his discussion of um, spiritual gifts, he notes here that um, formerly they were led astray to these mute idols that were not able to speak but in contrast to that, they themselves are speaking. But what is it that they are speaking? And we see here, they're not speaking if the Holy Spirit is in them, that Jesus is accursed, but rather if, and indeed as this Holy Spirit is in them, they're making this confession, Jesus is Lord. Again, going back to this kind of language that we see in 1 Corinthians 8, um, identifying um, who this son is. This confession of Jesus as Lord is foundational um, for these early Christian communities. A few years later, um, Paul writes um, the words we find in this letter to the church at Rome, and uh, there is a lot in this passage to look at, but I wanna highlight just a couple of things here. Um, Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now the detail that we have um, here in this text as um, Paul has just now spent um, a lengthy period of time um, in the epistle to the Romans detailing the problem of sin now he provides the explanation for how God has addressed this. And we notice in uh, verses 24 and 25 that Christ has been um, made to be a redemption for us, that God has put him forward as a, as a propitiation or as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so we're getting a sense of the kind of language that Christians are using to describe the role that Jesus has. As we go a little bit further on in, in this epistle to the Romans, um, we see a bit further explanation with what this entails. So in chapter 10, um, Paul, as he's talking about um, the reception of this message, um, gives these words here. And so we have, uh, what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, notice again what Paul does. 
You see at the, at the end of this, um, at this paragraph, we have yet again another quotation of the Old Testament scriptures. And in this case, from Joel chapter two. And Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone call, who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. As we look at the language here, the confession that early Christians are making, again, the same thing that we saw over in 1 Corinthians, we're seeing again here in Romans, um, written a few years later, um, Jesus is Lord. But what does it really mean to identify him as Lord? And Paul defines this later on in verses 12 and 13, that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, for those who call on the name of the Lord. Well, in the language of Joel, who is the Lord? Well, in the Hebrew text, it is Yahweh. Paul is using, yet again, a significant text associated with Yahweh from the Hebrew scriptures to identify Jesus as the one upon whom we call for salvation. Okay, now just to give a little bit of perspective here, um, these two letters were written in the mid-50s AD. So 1 Corinthians probably around 54, 55, Romans around 57 AD. Now, depending on when we date Jesus' public ministry, um, we're likely talking 21 to 24 years from the time period of Jesus' public ministry to the writing of these letters. Okay, so just kind of put this in a point of comparison. And, um, okay, I'm gonna make some of my colleagues upset at this point, okay? Um, and perhaps some of the students as well. Um, how many of you remember experiencing the events of September 11th? Okay, yep. All right, now I see some of you that weren't even born yet. Uh, my niece reminded me uh, the other day that that was uh, history to her. I'm like, history, that was within my lifetime here, come on. But, um, you know, or, or another point of reference if, that, if that's not helpful. Um, everybody know who Tom Brady is? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom Brady made his professional debut in 2001. Okay, does that give you a sense of the time frame that we're talking about? That's about 21 years in time. So from Jesus' ministry to as Paul writes these letters, we're not talking a lengthy period of time of kind of slow growth of um, these kinds of expressions as Jesus is being promoted, but we're talking within 20 to 25 years, these kinds of things um, being said about Jesus. Now just five years later, um, Paul is going to, as he's waiting his appeal uh, to Caesar, going to write these words to the church at Philippi. And uh, we find this in chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we don't have time to explore all of the details here in this passage, but what Paul is describing is the, is the unique qualification of the Son to be able to carry out this plan of redemption. And that though he was in the form of God, he takes upon himself human flesh and comes uh, here in order to ultimately, as we see here, to die on a cross. Now, Paul then describes how God has exalted him to the highest place and bestowed on him the highest name, the name that is above every name. The identity of this name is no mystery uh, to those familiar with the name in the Old Testament. Um, and this is uh, especially explicit as we come to verse 11 when we read this confession yet again that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, and the term Lord in Greek is used to translate the Hebrew Yahweh. 
The language in verses 10 and 11 is also drawn from Isaiah and a significant section at that. I'll go ahead and pull the, uh, the section up here on the screen behind me that um, Isaiah declares again and again and again the folly of idolatry and that God alone is God. And as we come to verses 22 and 23, we read these words, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn and from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow every tongue shall swear allegiance. Well, Paul takes these words, applies them to Jesus, and then declares that this recognition of Jesus as Lord is to the glory of God the Father. I think when we read these words, oftentimes we, we have such a sense of familiarity with them that we fail to see the remarkable nature of this kind of language. God shares his glory with no other. And according to Isaiah, all will acknowledge that God alone is God. There is no other. And yet what does Paul say? that this is what God has done with Jesus. Paul identifies Jesus with the God of Israel. And to make this claim, if incorrect, would be utter blasphemy as a Jewish man. Paul was convinced, however, that this was indeed true. And far from encroaching on the authority and the unique identity of God, the exaltation of Jesus was the very will of God. And the identity of Jesus is bound up in the unique identity of the God of Israel. Now, I could go on and give other examples um, here from um, Mark and Luke and Matthew and Hebrews um, and uh, um, uh, Peter's epistles and so on, but uh, we're going to take a look at one more. And there's a number of studies um, that have continued to affirm the high view of Jesus in each of uh, these other New Testament books. But we're going to look at one more text and probably should come to no surprise that it is from the book of Revelation. So... Um, this text was written later in the first century, probably in the mid-90s, and um, it is remarkable in the language used of Jesus. Um, and this is probably one of the last New Testament documents written, but again, if we're thinking about the time frame, that this was well within the lifetime of some of the earliest followers of Jesus. And so, still within this first generation of followers of Christ. Um, John uses a number of different titles and images throughout the book, um, but I'm going to focus on this text in chapter 4, where uh, John describes being caught up um, here to the, uh, the throne room of God. And, and for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through all of the details here as we go through the text, but I just want to highlight a few things. Um, so as the scene opens, he describes the throne, the one seated on the throne, and the heavenly company who worship this figure. As the details emerge in this passage, um, it becomes clear that John is utilizing imagery and language from several different Old Testament texts. And for those in my Revelation course, I could probably call on you right now and uh, nail all these details down. But the three main texts um, that we see are Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and Daniel 7. We have imagery from all three of these that are brought together in this passage. And he doesn't just simply kind of copy and paste from these different passages, um, which you should not be doing for your papers, by the way. Um, but what he does, in the, the detail that he gives, he makes these connections to these Old Testament texts and weaves it together in such a way that describes his own vision of the heavenly throne room, but then links that vision with what Isaiah saw, what Ezekiel saw, and what Daniel saw. Now, as this continues to unfold and progress um, throughout the book, as we have this worship taking place in the heavenly throne room, we come to chapter five. And it is there at the start of chapter five that we find this concern about the scroll in the hand of the one seated on the throne and this drama that unfolds of who is able to worthy, or who is worthy and able therefore to open the scroll and to break its seals. All of creation is searched and none are found worthy until the announcement is made that the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he is the one that is worthy to take this scroll. Now, 
the lamb appears as we find as the, the text goes on in Revelation. But the detail that in particular that I want to point to is the response of heaven. In chapter 5, we find heaven then responding and acclaiming here that the lamb is worthy to receive this as worship. In language, it's very similar to what we see uh, within chapter 4, given to God. If that is not clear enough, as the text continues, we have worship directed to both the one seated on the throne and the lamb. This is no ordinary throne room or ordinary location. This is the very throne room of God, what Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel saw when they saw the divine throne. This is the one that John sees, and there, in the context of the heavens, the lamb is worshiped alongside the one seated on the throne. We can look at a number of other texts, and we won't for the sake of time here today. But what do these snapshots indicate? Was Jesus just simply a good teacher? And some make this kind of claim today. Well, he's simply a good teacher. But that does not explain the kind of language that emerges in the New Testament. As we look at these sorts of claims, yes, he was a good teacher. But there's more going on than just simply that. What about the category of Messiah? And uh, this is a whole topic of discussion in New Testament, uh, New Testament studies. Um, the New Testament authors do clearly affirm that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's a recent study by Josh Jipp tracing that theme as one of the central themes through uh, the New Testament, um, clearly central to early Christian conviction. But when we look at, at other examples within Judaism, there was a lot of disagreement in terms of what it meant to be Messiah. And really, as we look at the New Testament, um, it really moves beyond what some of these expressions were in Second Temple Judaism. The remarkable contribution of the New Testament authors is how they articulate that Jesus fulfilled this role. And in some ways, <laughs> it is perhaps better to argue that Jesus' identity and vocation helped to clarify messianic interpretation. What did it really mean to be Messiah, rather than saying that he neatly fit categories that existed in his day in that way. We can look at other sorts of analogies from a Jewish context as well. Exalted patriarchs um, and uh, angelic beings that serve as agents of God. Um, perhaps this can provide an explanation for the position of Jesus in the early Christian movement. Now there are some incredible um, texts in describing the, you know, the, the uh, glorified human figures from the past and different angels that minister within God's presence as his chief agents that carry out his will. But yet, what we find in the New Testament is different than that. Um, I mentioned Richard Balcom earlier and um, describes um, this concern with the uniqueness of God. He says the uniqueness of the divine identity was characterized especially here by these two things. Um, that the one God is sole creator of all things, the one God is sole ruler of all things. To this unique identity corresponds monolatry, the, the worship of one God. And so what makes the difference, and um, Larry Hurtado in his own research has taken this a step further to argue that worship is the line of demarcation between these principal agents and the one true God. And so as Paul and these other New Testament authors are engaging these sorts of questions, angels don't really fit. Chief agents don't really fit. But what we see is a unique emphasis on the identity of Christ. Not just simply that he does what God does, um, but that he is who God is. As we consider the scene in Revelation, we can see this depicted in narrative form, the worship of Jesus. And, um, and throughout these early Christian writings, New Testament authors again and again affirm the continuity of the person and work with Christ with the story of the God exalted in the Hebrew scriptures. It is the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel that they serve. They affirm commitment to this one God in a way seen in the Jewish writings of the day that would strongly prohibit idolatry 
But yet this monotheistic commitment is reaffirmed as the gospel continues to the Gentiles, and they're quite frankly confused by this and, and uh, don't know quite what to make of these early Christians. But as it relates to Jesus, they continue to identify him with the divine name. They portray him as receiving devotion, uh, devotion appropriate only for God. As David Capes has argued, the early Christians saw the appropriateness of taking Old Testament Yahweh texts and applying them to Jesus and worshiping him as God. And even phrases, if we look at, we trace that back a little bit further, in 1 Corinthians, we see the phrase Maranatha, Aramaic, not Greek, that suggests that this was even earlier than the Greek-speaking communities. Well, why might this language and, and these practices have arisen at such an early date? Again, we're talking with some of these New Testament writings 21 to 25 years after the ministry of Christ. So why did this happen? Marcus Bachmuel um, makes this assessment. Three fundamental facts, he writes, I believe account above all for the astonishing transition from the historical Jesus of Nazareth to his followers' veneration of him as seated at the right hand of God. First, the early Christians' unequivocal belief in the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Secondly, the early Christian proclamation in which the preacher became the message without in process being stripped of the central emphases of his own teaching. And thirdly, the worship of Jesus in the formative parts of the early church. I wanna look at the first of these here, this conviction that God raised Jesus from the dead. So I have a selection up here, I won't go through all of these, but uh, God raised, God raised, God raised, God raised, God raised, God raised, he raised, God raised. God raised, God raised. Okay, you get the idea? This is a consistent emphasis that these early Christians were, were convinced that this was no ordinary event. It wasn't a mere um, even resuscitation or reanimation of the body, but God himself had raised Jesus and exalted him to the right hand, as we see in fulfillment of Psalm 110, a text that's alluded to and quoted all over the place in the New Testament. Um, Paul, in his own life, in encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, absolutely changed in his regard for who this Jesus was. We can see then, in light of this, um, the remarkable constellation of claims in the New Testament about the identity and work of Christ. That although the divine son, he has indeed come in the flesh. He is both creator and sustainer of all life. All the law and prophets point to him. His death was no tragedy of history, it was instead the very plan of God. His death was the taking of a curse for us as he hung on the tree. He's the head of the body, the church, bringing about the new creation. He's the source of identity and life for the believer and the one who will enact the events of the end. We see again and again these kinds of convictions that can be explained because of what took place here. The earliest Christians recognized the significance of the teachings, work, and identity of Christ and articulated these convictions as a direct fulfillment of God's redemptive work in the context of human history. When we assess then the question of the authority of Christ in the birth of the church, we can see the central place that Jesus has in this regard. We see uh, here that as the exalted Lord, Jesus has cosmic authority over all things and will bring about the eschatological plan of God to its fulfillment. The final expression of God dwelling with his people in scripture is a Christological expression as we see in Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus likewise has authority over the community of faith. He's the head of the body. The new community of the people of God finds its identity in him. He is the foundation of the church, as we have sung just a little bit ago, the Lord of the church, the aim, the purpose of the church. And finally, Jesus has personal authority for followers of Christ as well. In coming to Christ, individuals confess personally the divine identity of the Son, as we see in Romans 10 and in 1 Corinthians 12. They are united with Christ and find their own identity in relationship with the Son. Um, the aim of the Christian life is conformity to the image of the Son, as we see in Romans 8 and Colossians 1. And all aspects of life are defined through fidelity to Christ. 
And the earliest followers of Christ were so convinced of this that many of them were willing to even die for this conviction. Well, all of this is well and good, um, but it's one thing to argue historically that this was the conviction of the early church, that this explains how this developed with this kind of language, why we find these kinds of expressions so early on. And I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself here, but um, the question of the authority of Christ has continued to shape the history of the church. And we'll be looking at that tomorrow in uh, Dr. Dunn's talk. But the question really remains for us, what will you, what will I do with the person of Christ? Does what we believe about Jesus matter? Does how we live under Jesus' authority matter? For the earliest Christians, and as well for subsequent generations, the question of Jesus' identity and authority was of utmost importance. For us today, we must answer um, this same question, who is Jesus, both corporately as the church and personally before God. As we continue with this, this theme this week, um, uh, tomorrow um, with Dr. Dunn looking at the authority of Christ in the history of the church, and then our prayer day, Dr. Smither will be looking at the authority of Christ in the mission of the church. Um, my hope is that our faith is encouraged as we meditate on the person, the work, the significance, the authority here of the Son. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you for what you have um, given that um, through the sending of your Son that we see your plan of salvation, your plan of redemption, um, of all of history coming to fruition through the incarnation. And we recognize, even as these early Christians did, that this is no ordinary man, but that he is absolutely central to the Christian faith. And uh, Father, we, we share that same conviction as we seek to follow Christ in our world today, despite the challenges we face in our culture and, um, and in the world around. Father, we thank you um, for sending your son. And uh, we commit our time today as well as the remaining sessions in this week ahead to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Naylor. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.